Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoyed the message. Well, we're, uh, we're wrapping up our six-week series on uh, resolving personal conflict uh, today. There's much more than, uh, that could be said than has been or will be uh, today for um, the Lord Jesus uh, inspired the Apostle Paul in, in the writings to the church at Corinth that those of us who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, we are each one of us given the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, we, we're to spend our lives on mission where we live, work, and play, um, uh, beseeching, urging, pleading with people not only to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, but therefore to be reconciled to each other. And I would give you hope today that no matter how much, uh, what the level of, of interpersonal conflict in your, your life, that because Jesus has made it possible for you and me to be reconciled uh, with God the Father through faith in Him and what He accomplished when He died on the cross and rose from the dead, He has made available to us uh, the not only uh, the power but the desire and the opportunity to be reconciled to each other. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're uh, jumping in on the, the last message today. Uh, if you've missed the others, they kind of build on one another a little bit. And so you can go online uh, to dogwood.church and you can listen to all of the messages that we've done on this uh, issue across the past few weeks. But we've, we've taken uh, the, the entire last half of uh, the series to deal with the final stage, and that is forgiveness. And we've done so because forgiveness is such a, a big issue. It's such a difficult and a big issue. And uh, so last week, I, uh, uh, I, I took God's Word, and we described to you five really nice things forgiveness is not. And so you may want to check that one out. Today, I want to talk to you about not so much the actions of forgiveness. I've, I've taught on that many times here, but I really want to talk about what forgiveness looks like. When, when you and I have forgiven our offender, uh, how can we tell that we have? What does it begin to look like to us and in us? And so I've given you a, a little note sheet there in your uh, bulletin. You may want to grab a pen out of the uh, chair pocket in front of you or behind you. Uh, turn to a, a spot there, and I, I want to walk you through these stages uh, today. So we're going to get right to work, right to work. You ready? Here we go. Here we go. When I forgive, Pastor, you might ask, uh, how do I know that I have forgiven someone? What does it look like? Well, number one, it begins this way. I begin to see my offender as a human being again. I begin to see my offender or those who have wounded me as a human being Again, now when we when we are intentionally harmed by someone, at first, at least at first, maybe not all of us, but most of us, at least at first, we begin to hate them. Whoa, I don't, I don't like that word hate. I don't hate anybody. Well, I think maybe you do at time from time to time because here's a uh, uh, my my the best definition I've heard of hate is this, I wish someone harm, is that when someone comes to mind, 
I would be happy if bad things happened to them. Or if bad things did happen to them, I might feel a little pleasure at that. Not, might not want to admit it, even to, to, to anyone, even myself. Uh, but that's a, that's a pretty good definition of, of hate. I, I wish them harm. I might not want to do it myself, but if it comes, I think they need what's coming to them. And so when someone intentionally wounds us, we are harmed, we, we at first may tend to, uh, to hate them. And here's what happens when we hate another human being. When we hate another person, we tend to lose perspective. In other words, we begin, we first of all dehumanize them. And uh, we, sent, we tend to describe those who've wounded us this way as villains or demons or animals or monsters. Uh, and we do so when we're in the grip of our own hurt, our own resentment, our own malice, our own anger. We forget that they are human beings as well. And so when we also when we hate someone, when they've wounded us, we tend to shrink them to the size of what they did to us. We stop describing them as human beings and we describe them as what they, what they did. We, we use the term, they're no more than or they're nothing but. You know, uh, he's no more than uh, a thief or she's no more than a cheat or she's nothing but a liar or he's nothing but a brute or a drunk. You know, whatever they've done to us, uh, we, we shrink them to the size of what they, uh, they did to us. And when we use those terms, our no better thans or nothing buts, we, we knock the humanity out of our offender. Now, we've all done that from time to time, and we may and will always be tempted to do it again when someone harms us, uh, but it's just what happens uh, in us. Well, what do we do about that? Well, the first thing we do is we begin to think and realize and admit to ourselves and to God that we too have all intentionally wronged some other people in our lives in the past. Maybe a little thing, maybe a big thing, but we've all done it. We, we may do it again. We may do it uh, again. You see, the Bible says it this way. In part, this is what this means. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, verse 20, there's not a single person in all the earth who is always good and never sins. Hey, Ryan, can I get a little more monitor up here? Thank you. There's, there's not a single person in all the earth who is always good and never sins. Um, now, our, our culture, our society says that people are basically good. Now, that's not God's view of humanity. And I think a clear view of humanity is this. No one is always good. In fact, one time... Uh, uh, when Jesus was asked about this issue, he said, there is no one good but God. In fact, God himself is the standard for goodness, his person and his character. He is, he is good. No, the rest of us aren't good in the sense that no one always does good all the time. In fact, we, we have some pretty rotten stuff in our heart and in our soul. And uh, the evil in here, you remember some of you were in here uh, a couple of weeks ago and there's a little pretty four-year-old girl with her family sitting on the front row in the 915 service. And I said, I know there's a lot of evil out there, but what do we do about the evil in here in our heart? And she said out loud, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, she, that's the best response I've had in a message in a long, oh, no. What do we do about the evil that is in here? There is not a single person in all the earth who is always good and never 
sin. So we, we have done this. We will be tempted to do it again. It's highly likely we'll have a lot of opportunity to harm someone intentionally again. And so um, we, we, that helps us, re- and when we remember that, it helps us begin to see our offender as a little bit more human uh, Again, how will I know, Pastor, when I've forgiven someone? Well, uh, here's part of the answer. This is not all the answer. This is part of the answer. When we have forgiven our offender, and again, the acts and the steps of forgiveness are are beyond the scope of what I'm going to talk to you about today completely. We'll touch on it. But when we have forgiven them, we will know it when we find ourselves, think in terms of a long process, just beginning to see them through a little cleaner lens, less smudged by our own hate. It's kind of like we got our nice little glass cleaner cloth out and it's an anti-hate clean, clean off our lens. We just begin to see them a little clearer with a less smudged, uh, hate-smudged lens to, to uh, view them. We begin to see them as a real person as a human being, a botched self, a moral and spiritual foul-up, uh, no doubt. Still a mixture of meanness and some decency, uh, a mixture of lies and truth, a mixture of evil and, and good, but we, we begin to at least see them as a human being uh, again. Now, we may, you know, we, it, it'll be kind of back and forth. We'll backslide into seeing them as a monster there's a line there that God helps take us across. Uh, but, but we begin to see them. Okay, maybe they're a person. Maybe. Uh, one of the great examples of this in human history we find recorded in one of God's history books, the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. If you'll go to Genesis chapter 25 through verse uh, chapter 27, we find the magnificent story of the relationship between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Many of you know the story. Some of you have not read it. Read it for the first time uh, maybe this afternoon. Here, here's the story. In, in ancient times in the, in the, uh, in the Middle East, uh, two brothers were born. Esau was the older. Jacob was the younger. Uh, they could not have been more different. And uh, added on top of that, their, their parents played favorites. The father favored Esau, the mother favored Jacob. And uh, Jacob's name literally means deceiver in the ancient Hebrew. Now, why in the world? You know, sometimes I go and celebrate the births of babies in the hospitals, and they say, and their name is, and I go, Ooh. but... Uh, <laughs> But 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 I've not I've not now why do we choose that name and uh, but I really would have been shocked if I'd have been at the birth of Jacob said so we're going to name him liar, oh boy, that's wonderful, and uh, he lived up to his name he lived up to his name, uh, so there came a point now again we Westerners in our culture today have a really hard time going way back to the ancient Middle East and understanding this custom, but the the firstborn son had rights that none of the other children had. And one of the expectations was that at the end of the life of the, of the father, he would give a blessing which carried uh, a, a huge um, um, uh, 
significance from God's blessing and his blessing on the eldest son and a birthright. There were some material uh, uh, possessions that came to the elder brother, um, the elder, eldest son that was like nobody else in the family. Well, Jacob, the younger brother, conspired with his mother and they worked out a deal to deceive his elderly blind father into believing he was Esau and he gave the blessing and the birthright to the younger brother. Well, when Esau came in, he realized what had happened. It, it would have made the papers today. And uh, there, you know, it had been in the courts. If you know, he so anger. He wanted to. He began to spread through the family, and um, that when his father died, he was going to kill his brother. Now, people been people been murdered for less an offense than this down through history. They still are today. Well, Jacob feared for his life, and he fled to another uh, country. Uh, spent. Many, many years there, married, had a family, grew to be a very wealthy, prominent man. But then the tug came to go home again. You know about that hug? I mean, that tug to go home again? Yeah, it comes. And so uh, he was traveling back with all of his family his, his, and uh, children and all of his possessions, all of his servants in this big caravan, but he was afraid about meeting his brother Esau. And then he got word that his brother Esau was, com- was coming to meet him with 400 men. Well, this didn't look good. He thought, he's, he's going to, I mean, we can't find, they're going to, He's going to kill us all. But when he arrived, there's this beautiful scene. When Esau arrived, he got down off his horse and he ran and embraced and kissed his little brother. Whoa! What happened? I don't know. Or I don't know how it happened. But sometime in those years... Angry Esau, who saw his younger brother as nothing but a liar and a cheat and a deceiver who did terrible harm to him, lived up to his name. Somehow he began to view him, first of all, as a human being again, not a monster. And then he began to view him as my little brother who who did harm me, but who I really desire to love again. He forgave him. And forgiveness worked its way all the way out into seeing his younger brother as a human being again, someone he really wanted uh, to love. Say, Pastor, are you saying to me that if I forgive this terrible person who harmed me, that I will now feel like I want to be close to them again? Write this down. No! No, 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 no. Remember, go back and listen to last week's message. No, this stage of forgiveness does not turn an offender into a close friend or a, or a, a good husband or a trustworthy business partner immediately. It does not. However, we can tell that we have forgiven our offender 
when in our own private world, in our mind, our thinking, and in our heart, we begin, we take them back into our world as a human being who shares our own faulty humanity, bruised like us, sinful like us, still thoroughly blamable for what they did, but we know we, we start to see them as a person. Again, that's the first phase. I know something's happening good in my soul when this happens. That's the first thing forgiveness looks like. Here's the second thing forgiveness looks like. It is this. I give up my right to get even. I give up my right to get even. You know, after we've been wronged and wounded in the bargain, after we've been swindled and cheated and abused or demeaned, no human right seems more sacred than the right to get even, does it? Does it? Yeah, it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. To get even with the no-count scab that wronged us. I mean, oh, it just seemed like, yes, that's got to happen. And it's, uh, it, it, we want to get back at him or make her feel at least as much pain as he or she made us feel. Nothing could be fairer. Nothing could taste sweeter. Nothing seems more deserved. In other words, we want revenge. We want payback. Now, this, this is, it, it's, it, it's inevitable that that will be a first emotion when we've been wronged. Uh, it comes. It comes. One of the reasons I love to pray through the Psalms, the, the, the great songbook and prayer book in God's Word, the Bible, is that God uh, put into the Psalms... Uh, Examples of the full gamut of human emotion and, and almost all human relationships. And he, he, he shows us uh, examples of people praying when they were at this stage of anger. One of them was King David. I mean, King David wanted revenge at times. Listen to this. It's going to be on the screen. Have you ever felt like this? The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. <laughs> wow. You ever prayed that? <laughs> I mean, they, you know, I, again, us Westerners, we don't know. Some of you guys have traveled and do business and ministry and, and stuff internationally. You know this better. But But in the... Uh, in the east, it is a, it is a it is an obscene gesture to show someone the bottom of your shoe. I mean, it's, it's an insult, you know. And so, Westerners, what do we do? We, we go in the first thing we do is cross our legs and defend everybody in, t- in the in the place, you know, because it, it, especially in the ancient world, people the the streets were filthy with human waste and dirt and garbage, and so that's why you see in the scriptures in the narratives. When people would come into the home, they had a servant wash everybody's feet. It was a common, it was necessary, but it was also a gracious uh, show of, of hospitality. And David said, I'm not only not going to, I'm not only going to show them the bottom of my foot, I'm going to spill their blood and I'm going to wash my feet, my bottom of my feet in their blood. Woo! Think he might have wanted a little revenge? I think so. I think so, and, and we, can, we can feel that way. The, the ancient Greek poet uh, Homer, I believe, smacked his lips 
when he, when he said this about revenge. Take a look at his quote on the screen. It tastes so sweet. We swirl it around on our tongues and let it drip like honey down our chins. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, why, that's why we all like revenge movies, right? Yeah, we, we love it. Revenge sells when it comes to the movies in our culture. I mean, we go see them and we just know right at the right point the bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. And we go, yeah, I was waiting for that time. That's why I came to this movie. Right? Sure. We like it when but we like them because we want our enemy to suffer. Yes, but we also want him to know that he is suffering only because of what he did to us. And we don't want him to admit a mistake. We don't want him to flip out an apology in our direction like a 50-cent gratuity and go on as if nothing he'd done nothing worse than belch before dessert. We, we want uh, One writer that I read about revenge said this. Listen to this one, Marshall. You're going to like this one. He said, we want the satisfaction of watching him turn and burn with hellish leisure on the rotisserie of his remorse. <laughs> now, buddy, he'd worked on that one a while. Yeah, he'd worked on those words. I think he wore out a, a thesaurus uh, to, to get all those R words in there. Uh, but, the, but God, you know, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My ways are different than your ways. And sometimes he says, I'm, uh, listen to me, I'm, he's, what I'm about to say is counterintuitive. But in Romans twelve nineteen, he says, never avenge yourselves. Now, in the Greek, you study that really way down, it means like never avenge yourselves. (laughs) Never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. For he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. God is a just God. He's in charge of justice. And he's going to settle. It's going to all be settled. But he's in charge of justice. Listen to this, Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Now remember, we've already discovered that resentment doesn't work. Bitterness doesn't work. Anger does not work. Revenge does not work. It destroy, they destroy the one who holds them. It destroys us. Revenge is always self-destructive. And besides that, uh, revenge never brings closure. It never brings closure because in an exchange of pain, the accounts are never balanced. And the reason is simple. When I'm on the receiving end, the pain that you cause me always feels worse to me than the pain that I can cause you. And when I'm on the giving end, the pain that I cause you never feels as bad to me as the pain you caused me. And so this thing of we're going to all get even is a myth. That's why we see the famous family feuds from down through history. Because there's this payback. It, it, no, I think we're even. No, we're not even. Mm-mm. 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 Right? You got me? See, it, 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 it never brings peace. It never brings closure. But when we for, have forgiven someone, we find ourselves saying every time the memory of the hurt comes to mind or just the memory of the person who hurt us comes to mind, 
we find ourselves saying, using it not to cause us to relive the hurt, but remind us to turn to Christ in prayer. The memory of our hurt becomes a trigger to do something good, which is pray. Pray to the Lord because we know we need Him. And this is what we pray. And this is something, this is an act of forgiveness. I recommend you write this down and that you begin to practice this. We say to Him, Lord, I give up my right to revenge. I give up my right to get even. And we acknowledge it's a right, but we give it up. Lord, I give up my right to revenge. I give up my right to get even. Say it with me. I give up my right to revenge. I give up my right to get even. You say, well, how often do I say that? Well, every time the hurt comes to mind or the person comes to mind, which means most of you, some of you might spend the next four or five days, that's all you do. Over and over and, and over. I mean, the apostle Peter uh, asked the Lord Jesus this. He said in Matthew eighteen twenty one and Uh, through 22. Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, Jesus replied, 70 times seven. 70 times seven. That that means you never stop. And so we give up our right to get even. Now you might want to add, Lord, I give up my right to revenge. I give up my right to get even. Help me. Because you can't do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. So, Pastor, this is just not fair. Well, of course it's not fair, but it is forgiveness. And forgiveness is what sets you free from bitterness and anger and resentment and allows your heart to heal from the hurts that it never deserved. Never deserved. So, and you say, well, why do I have to pray this over and over and over? Because you don't get over a major hurt with just one little flippant prayer to God. I mean, we don't even get over a cold that quickly. We have to go you get all this medicine and rest and, uh, you know, four or five, six days a week, and then maybe you get over it. Hey, some of you have such, you've been wounded by people to such an extent. There are these great scars on your soul. Do you think you're going to heal up from that just by one little, okay, Lord, help me to, uh, I give up my right, just help me to forgive. Okay, we're good. Oh, he knows how you are made. He made you. He knows about these huge things and he knows you're going to need a whole lot of time with me to be put back together again. And so 70 times 7, just keep on, just keep on, just keep on uh, drawing near to him. So what does forgiveness look like? How can I tell when I have forgiven someone who's wounded me? Well, I begin to see them as a human being again, and I begin to find that I'm, I am actively giving up my right to get even and leaving justice to uh, God. And there's a third stage, and it is this. I begin to revise my feelings or actually I wish I'd have written this down another way, I begin to realize my feelings are revising because it's something God does to us, to our feelings, something that we thought could never happen. Because remember what, what we feel when we are initially wounded is hate. We may want to disguise it because we don't like to recognize it in ourselves, it, but hate is hate no matter how we pass it off. It might be the passive kind of hate that just makes us feel a little good inside when bad things happen to the person who wronged us. That's passive hate. 
Or it might be the aggressive hate that's screaming in the streets holding signs uh, for the other person to feel pain at least the size is ours. Our hurt can leave us calling on heaven to make bad things happen to the person who did bad things to us. That's what hate is. That's what hate is. And when we're there, we feel as if our emotions would, will always be in this state. They'll always, uh, this can never change. That there's no power in this world big enough to change the way I feel. No power big enough to eradicate the rage that is inside us or to blow away the bitterness or to erase the resentment that wells up in us every time we're reminded of this person or these people or this group who, who harmed us. But when we begin to forgive someone, we find, we find, we recognize, I think my feelings are changing a little bit. Remember, think about a stage, think about a, a phase. I think my feelings are changing just a, a, a little bit here. Now, first, we may even feel a real but, but reluctant wish here, okay, I'll just tell you exactly. I wrote down how a guy said it to me one time. I'm finding that I have a, a real but a, a reluctant wish that just maybe some good things might happen to the weasel. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he was. Now, I thought that was good. I thought that was clear. And that's, that may be where we are. And, and again, this feeling of goodwill will probably leak and we'll backslide into, no, 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 no. I don't want any good <laughs> to happen uh, to this, this person. And, um, you know, so we're bound to backslide into a little bit of malice along the way. But we know all of a sudden I'm not in malice all the time. <gasps> Something's happened that I thought was impossible. And I like how one writer said, he said, you'll find if you forgive the way Jesus forgives, that over time forgiveness, even without your desiring it, will begin to sneak and creep into your emotions and perform this third stage of forgiveness, the miracle of emotional healing that you previously thought to be impossible. But the Bible says... Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Look at this. In Job chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, the Bible says this. Put your heart right. Reach out to God. Then face the world again, firm and courageous. Then all your troubles will fade from your memory like floods that are past and remembered no more. Reach out to God again. This is why I've been saying throughout this entire series that conflict resolution and forgiveness requires God, the God of the Bible, and His name is Jesus. We can't and won't and don't even desire to do this on our own. You and I are still people in need of a Savior. His grace and the power of His Holy Spirit to enable us both to desire and to forgive, to want to and to do so. He will do that. Uh, he, he will do that work. Apart from Him, we can't do it. So why don't we pray? Let me, all of you who are already followers of Jesus, why don't you turn the place where you're seated into your own place of, of prayer. And uh, let me ask you, who is it that you cannot forgive? From your heart, name their name.
to the Lord right now. You might even say, Lord, I not only can't I, I don't want to. You might as well pray honestly if you're going to try to pray. I don't want to. Who is it you don't want to forgive? Why don't you start this first step by praying and telling the Lord Jesus? And you might want to back up and say, Lord, not only do I not want to forgive, I don't even want to want to. Now that's honest praying. You may to put it in reverse and back it all the way up to, I don't even want to want to forgive. So I guess I need you to help me at this point with where, with my desire. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, he will do so. It is God who is at work in you both to desire and to do what pleases him. And so I ask him. Now those of you here who are not yet Christians, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might be asking, well, Keith, what must I do to have Jesus in my life and to help me to forgive? Well, it all begins by becoming a Christian. It all begins by receiving Christ. It all begins by becoming a follower of Jesus. And here's how you do that. Let me get really clear for a moment. In Jesus Christ, God the Father did something for you and for me that we cannot do for ourselves. He stepped out of heaven and took on the form of a man, came to earth as a man, yet was without sin. And he went to the cross in our place and took upon himself while he was on the cross the burden of our sin, your sin, my sin, all of our sin, and he atoned for it. He paid the full price for it, satisfying his very own demands of justice so that you and I would not have to atone for our own sin forever. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he was who he claimed to be and that he could do this for you and for me. Now, some of you are now ready to say to Jesus, you've not done so before, but you're ready to say to him, I am ready to turn from my sin and give up my control of my life in eternity and place my active trust in you, Lord Jesus, and what you accomplished when you died on the cross and rose from the dead. Some of you are ready to do that. And if you do so, you're about to be transformed by His saving grace. Uh, given His Holy Spirit to take up residence in your life, begin to live under His wonderful care and supervision on a daily basis, and receive a home in heaven with Him when you die. In other words, you're going to receive what the Bible calls eternal life. And I urge you to do so. And so if that's you, And right now, you'd say, that's me. Right now, I want to give my life to God through Jesus and faith in Him. I'm willing to turn from my sin, uh, submit control of my life to Him, and receive His gift of eternal life. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. Would you just lift up your hand all over this room? Anybody in the balcony? Okay, okay. Well, I want to pray for you and pray with you. If that is you, then... Let me encourage you to make this commitment from your heart to the Lord Jesus. There's nothing special about these words. God's more concerned with the attitude of our hearts than the words of our mouths. But if this expresses the attitude of your heart, make it your prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and ask you to come in as my Savior and my Lord. 
Thank you for forgiving me and for giving me eternal life. To the best of my understanding, I submit control of my life and my eternity into your hands. Now make me the kind of person you want me to be. And Lord, thank you for hearing these prayers. Amen. Now, there's one more thing that Jesus requires of us. And that is to confess him publicly before men. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, he said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And he even designed the way that he uh, wants us to celebrate publicly the faith that we have personally. It's called baptism. The Bible teaches that once we commit our lives to Christ, He desires us to declare it publicly through believers' baptism. And we're prepared to help you celebrate your Christian baptism here this morning. Uh, When the service is over, if you'll get up and go immediately out these doors to my right and to your left, across the lobby, out onto the patio, and turn right, you'll find yourself in our outdoor baptism area. The men and women on our baptism team are there already now, uh, ready to help you celebrate your Christian baptism. Uh, we have everything you need to do so. We have uh, changing areas. We have change, uh, change of clothes for you. We have towels. They're there to assist you. And so you go right there like, like people do after every one of our worship services and go public with their faith in Christ I mentioned a few weeks ago, one of my friends in the ministry told me after he explained coming to Christ and then believer's baptism, uh, after service, a little nine-year-old boy walked up to him and said, Pastor, when can I be advertised? I thought that was a pretty good description. When you're baptized, you are advertising. I don't care who knows that I've become a follower of Jesus. And I'm going public with my faith. It's a step of obedience uh, that God uses to grow you up spiritually and to share His Word. So you be sure to be a part. Others of you may have made spiritual commitments. You can let us know by uh, indicating it on the back of your Dogwood response card you received and dropping it in the offering basket at the end of the service in just a moment. And uh, we'll look forward to that as well. Well, We're celebrating forgiveness. And remember I told you that... uh, Uh, Because we have been forgiven by Christ, we can forgive others. And we're going to talk about that great salvation, this word written on our heart. Come on, guys. Come on, musicians. Step it on up. Uh, Forgiveness, this word that is written on our hearts. Why don't you stand and sing it with us? Let's do so. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you would like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword DOGWOOD to 77977 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and to give.